0: Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host today, Dr. Camden Bird, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Christy Nabin who is the VO and Elizabeth Cal Figge Chair in Catholic Studies at the University of Iowa. Today, uh, Dr. Christy Nabin warren will be talking to us about her new book. Meatpacking America How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland, which was recently published by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Christy Nabin Warren, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Camden. And please call me Christy in, uh, during our interview. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. Christy, thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to talk about your book, which I really enjoyed reading. Um, and maybe before we jump into meatpacking America, which is really an examination of the role of religion, immigration, and work in Iowa, let's hear a little bit about the background of the book. Where did this project begin? What led you to examine the intersection of religion, migration, and work in the Corn Belt?
1: Those are that's a great question. I'm really glad you you let off with that. This is something I talk with my grad students a lot about. The kernel of the idea, like where does it start and where do we go with it, right? And so this. This is my third major ethnography, and this book really took a very different shape than what I had thought in the beginning. And that's the beautiful thing in my mind about ethnography. I think, too, for those folks who do a lot of archival work, you find some great things and you're not really sure where it's gonna go, and it ends up going somewhere beautiful. So when I um, you know, I was fairly new to the University of Iowa, it was the fall of 2012. And as an ethnographer, I always look around me. I want to find a story. I think I'm very journalistic in that sense that I, I like to kind of take my time and get used to a particular milieu. And so I was just, you know, just driving around Iowa a lot on the weekends. I was just driving to small towns and hamlets, rural parts of the state. I was new to Iowa. I grew up in Indiana, I had worked in Illinois for many years at Augustana College. So I was pretty new to the state of Iowa. And so one of the things that really struck me, and, and given that I have a Catholic studies position, I, I was really interested in the beginning of exploring rural Catholic parishes. And there's been this phenomenon for the past ten years or so, even be, even before that, of consolidating parishes, closing them down, consolidating them. And there's been a lot of friction about that, a lot of a lot of sadness, a lot of angst among among white ethnic parishioners. And so I started the project wanting to compare and contrast several different Catholic parishes, one in Columbus Junction, Iowa, St. Joseph the Worker, one in Washington, Iowa, St. James, West Liberty, and also a more urban quote-unquote one in in Iowa City, which is actually in a a cornfield, so it looks fairly rural, St. Pat's. And so um, I I was just sort of observing and, and conducting interviews over the first year, year and a half, And then I decided I was really honing in on Columbus Junction, Iowa. That was the parish that really captivated me the most because of the influx of refugees, migrants from the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico. And then you had, you know, the white ethnic Catholics as well. And I was thinking a lot about Catholic sociology. Sociologists do Catholic studies, and how they were studying parish dynamics. And I was trying to really make sense of what I was seeing. This was a very, this was a parish that really was two very different communities: one Spanish-speaking and one English-speaking. And there wasn't a lot of intermingling. It was very much, it wasn't so much. It was a shared, a shared space, as a sociologist Brett Hoover would say, but I would call it a more a very reluctantly shared space. And so I was trying to make sense of of the dynamics of people in space and sharing space. And as I was conducting interviews, the vast majority, 99% of the parishioners I was interviewing in Columbus Junction, in Washington, in West Liberty, worked for Tyson Foods, a pork processing plant in Columbus Junction. And the parish priest at the time of of the Columbus Junction Parish, St. Joseph the Worker said, you know, Father Joseph Sia, who's become a very good friend, said, you know, I really think you need to tour a meatpacking plant. Because I was saying, you know, I just, I'm getting these stories, but I just really feel like I need to go there too. And he said, yeah, I really agree. And by the way, he said, I, I'm good friends with Joe Blay, the chaplain, and let's have a tour. And so the project quickly became, I think, much more interesting. Because I, as, as someone who studies lived religion, it's really important for me to go to spaces where religion is lived. And it tends to be places like parishes, churches, synagogues, temples, right? The woods, for neo-pagans. But I was really interested in looking at workplaces as sites of religious friction as well as religious devotionalism, and, and, and was that existing? And so I literally went to work at a couple packing plants. And that's where I think the project took off. I mean, it was, this is probably the most challenging project I've ever done. And I wasn't sure if it honestly would come together and hopefully it did. <laughs> so I,
0: I think it came together. I uh, I really enjoyed reading this book and you your work in ethnography really highlights some great stories. I mean, this you've got some incredible stuff that you have observed and it's written beautifully and I quite enjoyed reading it. One, one of the pieces you also point out about the Midwest is that you say that the Midwest is too often depicted as monolithic and and overly rural and white, which is incredibly misleading when you actually look at the demographic and religious realities of the region. In fact, you make the case the Midwest more than any other place provides an important lens to view the larger changes throughout the country. You write, uh, and this is a quote from your book, the corn belt can be an evocative conceptual tool to reimagine and rework American histories and sociologies, present day religion, spirituality in the Corn Belt is part of a complex and emergent global Midwest. And it is Latinos, the vast majority of whom are Catholic, who are the center of the global Midwest. What are people missing about the American Midwest? And how does your book begin the process of overturning these outdated and exclusionary stereotypes?
1: Yeah, great question, Camden. Yeah, I think You know, a couple friends have teased me, well, you're a Midwesterner, is this a love letter to the Midwest? I would say sort of yes and no, because as a a lifelong Midwesterner, I have, I've observed, I grew up in Gary, Indiana, so the region, uh, you know, and I've always been interested in, you know, migration, sort of that intersectionality again of migration, work and faith. And I grew up in a a steel mill town and most of my relatives worked in the mills um, or they were teachers, you know, and so. I came from very much a melting pot of of ethnic realities in Northwest Indiana. And I've always been intrigued by that. I think throughout the course of my research, and as I, was, as I was conducting field work, I was doing a lot of reading, historical reading. My, my husband's a historian, so he's always trying to get me to... So I, I, I'm really pleased that you enjoyed the book, Canada, because I, I really wanted to attend to the history of Iowa and migration. And what, it, what, is, what did that look like, 19th century? What did that look like, early 20th century? What does that look like today? And what I have found when I was doing my research on uh, the contemporaries of whether it was journalists writing about the Midwest or historians or you know, anthropologists. I think mostly the book is responding to what I would call time-worn tropes about the heartland. And I'm and I'm not the only one doing this. Art Cullen, who is a wonderful Pulitzer prize-winning journalist, who is really pleased blurb the book. Art Cullen's book, Storm Lake, attends to this, and, and all of his work really attends to this really magnificent diversity in states like Iowa. That's really under the radar. And I think it's under the radar because a lot of this ethnic commingling and mixing takes place in hidden spaces like the CAFOs, you know, the confined animal feeding operations, the meat packing plants, which are also very hidden, egg candling factories, um, hog castration barns. These are spaces where there is so much inter-ethnic, interracial coming together, frictions as well as friendships forming. And I think that I was just so fortunate to be able to have a bird's eye view, to be able to get access to some of these spaces, that I just think we really, we really need to go beyond this, well, I was white, I was this, I was that. And I also take very seriously in the book, as I'm sure you read, I'm not letting whites off the hook. And I include myself in that. I mean, there's a long history of racism, of course, throughout our country. So, too, in Iowa and the Midwest. And so I definitely, what I'm trying to explore also in the book is what I call the sticky wicket of whiteness. Most of the white ethnics I interviewed really liked, in a lot of ways, how their town was diversifying. They see that recent migrants are revitalizing former dying downtowns, and they're pleased. But they're also having a longing for a white past, a mythical white past. And so they're really torn and it's really complicated. So I, so I think what I'm trying to get across in the book is let's try to go past, let's try to get past hot takes. You know, all whites are racist. And I try to get at the complexity of identity, not saying that racism is a rea- isn't a reality, but saying yes, but also. And so I'm trying to do a both and story here.
0: Yeah. And I think that comes through in the book. And you're very clear about laying that out, especially, you know, as you talk about how identity is formed, race is one part of that, but you also talk about uh, the role of work uh, and certainly religion. And in fact, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about religion, which you place at the center of this story and, and predominantly Catholicism. But you aren't necessarily focused on, you know, like theological nuance uh, or tracking church attendance rates, though that actually is, you know, certainly in here. You're experiencing and you've used the term already uh, lived religion. And I just think like that's a really interesting term. Maybe our listeners uh, would love to hear more about what does it mean to study lived religion and how does that inform the way that you understood the various actors in this larger story that you're telling?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think lived religion really grew out of, you know, in the 90s, what was called popular piety and official piety and lived religion, I think really attends to, and my my mentor Bob Orsi is one of the leading, uh, leading scholars in the field on this. So I owe a lot to my mentor, Bob, in, in training me. I think whereas the dichotomy popular piety and official piety really dichotomized religious realities. The, the, the framing of lived religion attends to the realities that religion has lived in a lot of places and it's messy. So religion has lived in parishes, for example, you know, qualitatively religious places, capital R, you know, the steeple, right? But religions also lived in homes and in workplaces. And one of the things that I really struck me when I was doing this research, it's kind of a simple thing, but it really hit me. Like, you know, most Americans, we live the vast majority of our waking hours at work. And there aren't a lot of studies about religion in the workplace, and and this book, Meatpacking America, is is one. I think of a growing number of books that are looking at religion in the workplace. There's some really great books out there. Um, Maker's Temple by my colleague Nicole Kirk. Um, we've got Faith at Work. It's it's a sort of a think tank at Rice University. Um, more and more scholars are starting to look at this, and I'm really pleased because I think that I think you know, we really need to go beyond the confines of of, of when we think of religion, we think of certain places. And I'm trying to get the reader to think about, well, can religion be lived at a slaughterhouse? How is it lived? How is there a religious lexicon that is created and inculcated by the CEOs and CFOs of meatpacking plants. I teach a class here at Iowa, University of Iowa, sport and religion in America. So we talk a lot about Kinnick Stadium being like a pilgrimage site. And we, so it, it's playful in a way. I mean, it's playful. It's, it's getting the reader and us to think about, wow, let's, what would religion look like if we thought about it like this? And to me, it's a, it's very freeing. And it's also really qualitatively accurate because it really reflects The moods and motivations of my interlocutors who are like, yeah, when I go to Tyson, it smells horrible. I pray to God to get me through this day because it sucks here. You know, I mean, you know, religion is invoked, whether it's on tattoos, on scapulars, small prayers being said on the line to like, please get me through the day without getting injured. I certainly don't intend to romanticize religion in the workplace, but I want to show that it's a space where religion can craft an outlet.
0: A lot of historians interested in this podcast, and I respect that you said you want to bring history in. History is in this book, despite the fact that it is about recent history, Uh, but you do a good job of sort of also lining up these long trends, these historical events that lead to the changes that you're starting to examine. So I wonder if we can dive back and, and start where your book starts, which is religion has always been central to life in Iowa dating back to the 19th century, when European migrants established themselves in Iowa. How did religion, particularly Catholicism, shape the social lives who settled in Iowa?
1: Yeah, great question. And again, you know, uh, I was trained by historians as well as anthropologists, so I always feel like I'm toggling back and forth, which is fun. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, so you know, as you know, since you read the book, Camden. Um, so, chapter one start homemaking. I start out with Corinne Hardgraffen, who is, uh, you know, 96 now. She is an Irish German Catholic woman. She just celebrated her birthday with her extended family, and so I really try to. I start each chapter with a story, uh, one of my interlocutors, and then I and I go into the history. Of, of, of her community. And so what I do in chapter one is I really show how Catholicism, Irish and Catholic Catholicism, really kept the community together after they migrated from various places in Germany and Ireland, and, and how it gave a deep sense of meaning. And the parish for these late 19th century, early 20th century migrants was that special place. And it figures prominently in all of the stories of the 90 something 80 something interlocutors i interviewed who are now mostly going to St. Catholic the worker uh, St. Joseph the worker i'm sorry not St. Joseph the worker in Columbus Junction and so i i introduced characters like Father Mazacelli who was an italian who was an italian priest who was a frontier priest and who really you know blazed through iowa making iowa more catholic you know throughout the southeast and then the western part of the state and so as an ethnographer and i guess it would be very similar to what historians would call micro histories it's not i, I certainly don't as as you know camden give a picture of every single county in the state i'm really mostly focusing on eastern southeastern, eastern and parts of central iowa and so i want to give the reader a sense of an understanding of you know, what it meant to be an Irish and German Catholic growing up in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then I ease the reader into today, where most of the Catholic migrants are from the Northern Triangle, Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And one of the things that I try to show is those things that mattered most to those earlier Catholic migrants. So too, those matter to migrants today, making a home, putting food on the table, not renting, owning a home tithing or giving money to the church and just being good citizens. I mean, so I'm just trying to show how these groups are very much interrelated. Um, they, have very, they have shared experiences.
0: Thinking about how the changes that you line up that ha- occur throughout the 20th century, you, you particularly note that the, the farm crisis of the 1980s is going to be start of this turning point uh, that will initiate a series of changes in Iowa. What was the farm crisis? Uh, how did it reshape the economic and demographic landscape of the region?
1: Yeah, the farm crisis—you know—a lot has come up a lot in interviews, and I'm I'm really thinking about what the next project's going to be, and I think it's going to really focus more on, intently on farming and post 1980s. Like, what are, what does farming look like today? The farmers that I talked with who raise the corn. So this is all interrelated, as you know, from reading the book. So I talk quite a bit about corn. And so those farmers who grow corn and soybeans, the corn in particular that feeds the sows and the cattle from the ranchers and other folks I interviewed, feeds the animals that go to the slaughterhouses, right? So there was this extreme economic depression that swept the state. And a lot of folks um, had really powerful memories of suicides of coming home and seeing their grandfather or their father who had hung themselves. And so you know, prices, you know, crashed. So the corn and soybeans weren't worth what, what they had been worth. Many of these families had invested a lot of money on credit, on farm equipment that, um, you know, a lot of them bought new farm equipment that, that then they ended up having to sell at cost. So it was a huge, ex- not only an economic depression, but I would call it an, an existential crisis for rural America in Iowa and surrounding states. And a lot of scholars have done really good work on the farm crisis. So I'm really glad you asked that because it's not a huge focus. So I'm sort of looking after that, but I'm thinking about going back to the farm crisis and really talking about, so where are farmers today in a post-Trump Biden America now, what's going on, right? And I think what we saw right at the same time as we saw depressed farmers Families having to sell off land, having to parcel it up and sell off, losing the farms to banks, right? That was a really sad story that I, that I um, was told. A couple of my interlocutors, Gary is one, I write about him. He's from Arden, Iowa. His family lost the farm. Uh, his dad when it had gone into a deep depression. It has been Gary's dream to buy land again, perhaps to even buy some of the land that his family had once owned. So what he's doing, and this is an interesting trend in Iowa today, there are many elderly women who own land, who inherited land, and they lease it out to men who farm it for them. And these men have full-time jobs and they're also hoping to save up to buy land. So there's this fascinating cyclical process here. Gary's hoping to buy some land to farm Mm -hmm. that he can can pass down to his son and future grandchildren. And so this was something that I was told by a lot of my interlockers, wow, yeah, I'm farming for somebody else but I really hope to be able to buy land. To have something to leave, Mm For my, for my descendants. Robert Wuthnow, who's a really wonderful uh, sociologist, he's retired uh, from Princeton. He has some really good books out. One is On Farming and Faith. I'm blanking on the title right now, but Bob Wuthnow, uh, I believe he's from Kansas, most most of his career at Princeton, but he has a couple books out that really focus squarely on red what are now called red states, and one of his books is On Farming. So dovetailing the farm crisis, we also see at the same time that we saw that depression we saw what were once formerly inner city urban slaughterhouses right where the slaughtering took place there everything took place there the cattle were there the slaughtering took place there um we saw deunionization, union busting and factories that were once in cities like chicago you know the stockyards or in cincinnati porkopolis moved to rural places in Iowa, where they, and and other states like Kansas and Nebraska, where they could operate more cheaply, where they could get around, where they could get around unions, right? And so we see a lot of de-unionizations and a lot of workers' rights really uh, diminishing at, at this time in the 1980s. We see like very few corporations taking over, not only with farming, but also with meatpacking. You know, we've always had like the big three, big four, big five and meatpacking.
0: Yeah. And you talk about uh, the demographic changes and the fact that this will start to lead to, you know, an increase in immigration from Latin America, but also from Africa and Southeast Asia, who are often working these new jobs in these meatpacking plants. What are the experiences of those migrants as they are coming into Iowa?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I look at a lot of different groups in the book, and I um, I have an extended end note on this in the book, as you probably read. I, I refer to all of my interlocutors, all of the migrants, as refugees, whether or not they're de facto refugees or de jure legal refugees. Um, so I lay out all the different sort of legalistic definitions. What I, I take a stand and I say, you know, I'm calling all these folks refugees because they're all fleeing a certain kind of violence, whether it's a physical violence, economic violence, political violence. Many women were, you know, domestic abuse, um, sexual abuse. And so the migration, the experiences differ depending on the group. Like, so a couple of my interlocutors that made their way into the book won the diversity lottery. So um, Maurice was able to come over because he won the diversity lottery in South Africa. He was one of those who like, literally won the lottery that year, and he was able to work and save up money to, to send for his wife and his young children. There are other refugees who cross over undocumented, quote-unquote, illegally, and those have tended to be the Mexicanos and the Guatemalans who cross over and make their way to Iowa. Now, Iowa, this is an important point, Iowa is not usually the primary the first destination point. It's usually the secondary or the tertiary. And so um, my refugees will come over across the border. Oftentimes we'll have a family member in Iowa. And I think about this. I thought about this Camden as I was writing the book, imagine coming over, you know, not knowing the language, not knowing English, knowing you have a relative Juan somewhere in Iowa, a place you've never been. You might just have his telephone number written on a scrap of paper in your pocket and you make your way to this man, right? These were such powerful stories that I was told. And I just kept thinking about the courage and the will. And, you know, one of my big um, goals of this book as you probably caught on to, is really to get the reader to really empathize with these migrants. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of stories from folks, you know, and I'm sure we've all heard these stories. Well, you know, my relatives crossed over legally. We did it the right way. We went through Alice Island. And that's actually not so accurate. And one of the things that I really try to point to, too, is the capriciousness of and the political, you know, the, the political, you know, uh, messiness of migration policy. And migration policy in the United States has always been at the whims of politicians, right? And so my Lebanese relatives and my Polish relatives coming over, you know, they didn't all come over, you know, on the radar. Some of them came over on, under the radar. And so I'm trying to tease that out as well, saying we all have these stories in our families. And let's really, reckon with these stories. And so, again, I really want the reader to try to empathize. So I, that's why I share a lot of these stories. These men and women, they know they have a relative somewhere in Iowa, whether it's Coralville, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Columbus Junction, and they somehow make their way here. I find that to be such, I, I don't even know the word for it, Canada. just such an incredible story of will and perseverance. Like, this was such a hard book to write because I cried a lot as I wrote it, as I was thinking about, I always take photos. I always have pictures on my phone and that I print of my interlocutors that I tape on the wall when I'm writing and just imagining them and their stories and lighting candles, trying to really get into the, an affect of writing. Um, just really powerful, really powerful. And I really hope that whoever reads this book thinks about their own relatives and their own migration stories, because we all have those stories, you know?
0: Yeah, and you, again, the stories that you are showcasing and highlighting in the book, they do uh, get, develop that empathy. At least that's my experience as I was reading it as well. Um, you do feel for the individuals who are go, overcoming tremendous odds to get uh, to, their, to these destinations. You talk about the role that the church, particularly the Catholic Church for some, play upon getting to Iowa. Right? These are community centers. Um, this is where family meets uh, often where you will get together uh, with people who have gone through similar experiences. Um, what, what is it like for the refugees, the migrants to get folded into these religious communities?
1: You know, I wouldn't say it's easy. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, that's why, and that's this was something else. I mean, I hadn't planned on working with so many wonderful activist priests, you know. But I did, and um, I, so I featured them, as you know, in one of the chapters. I think that the integration of of newcomers into any environment is really difficult. And going back to looping back to what I said earlier, while the white ethnic Catholics in these parishes where I did field work see the positivities of these newcomers to their downtowns, you know, they, they see that they really keep their yards nice and tidy. Like them, they have statues of the Virgin Mary, like they do in their front yards. There's so resentment, you know, there's so resentment. And I think that these priests are like superheroes. And I know we read a lot about, there's a lot of bad stuff going on with the, with the Catholic church with sexual abuse crisis. And, and this book was in no way intended to say that that is not a reality too. It's a bull fan, right? What I'm trying to show is that there's another. There there are other priests out there who are doing this work of social justice activism, and so I try to feature some of these priests and what they're doing and how hard and what a toll it's taken on these priests too. So Father Joseph Sia, you know, in one of our many interviews in, in the parish hall, said, "Yeah, he goes. I really feel like." my ministry is schizophrenic because he said, I feel like I'm not making anybody happy. You know, I'm trying to appease the whites, you know, because while they're smaller in number, they're the ones who have the money and they're the ones who maintain the building. They're the ones who give money and keep things going. You know, they pay part of my salary, you know, but he said, it's it's the Latinos. They're the ones who are filling the pews. So the Spanish language mass is like bursting at the seams. And several years ago, there was a real to do because the church council, um, which is mostly white Catholics at uh, St. Joseph, the worker in Columbus Junction, they, they just didn't, they decided they just didn't want to build a bigger space because their mass is, is small. You know, they're not bursting at the seams, but an hour and a half later at the Spanish language mass, folks are sitting like on top of each other. Literally there's are folding chairs. It's just not big enough. Um, and so we see tensions there. We see sort of like Whose space is this? Who owns the space, right? Um, I remember once, and this is a story that I tell, I drank a lot of coffee over the six, seven years of this, but a lot of coffee and ate a lot of baked goods. You know, I, I think I'm now just now shedding the pounds that I gained from all the wonderful coffee cakes I ate and donuts. And so I'd be sitting in, in, in the, the basement chatting with some of my, the, the white Catholic ladies having a great conversation and I shared this story in the book that one of my Latina interlocutors came down, I switched over into Spanish, we, we hugged, we were talking about, I think we were talking about the upcoming Virgen de Guadalupe celebration on December 12th. And I was like, yes, I'll be there, I'm going to bring my son. And, and, then, and then she went back upstairs to get ready for the Spanish language mass. And the ladies who I had just been having a very warm conversation with literally gave me the stink eye, the deaf stare, like, hey, what were you saying? And where you're talking about us, you know, because that's a huge problem, the monolingualism of white Americans. We we don't know enough languages. And my Spanish is good, it's not perfect. But I think that this is one of the things that I think we really that we really need to improve upon in order for parish dynamics to improve. White folks need to really learn some other languages. And in this case, Spanish. And so you'll have like Latinos who speak Spanish going to the English language mass, really trying to improve their English, but you don't see many white. Catholics, English speaking Catholics going to the Spanish language mass. And so, you know, most Latino Catholics in my experience, feeling at home and feeling welcome takes a lot of time. They're acutely aware that this isn't really their space. And there's a lot of great scholars who are doing excellent work on this. So my, co- my colleague, Susan Reynolds at Emory is coming out with a wonderful book through Fordham University Press. And she's really looking at parish dynamics uh, inter-ethnic, interracial dynamics at a Boston, a Roxbury mm-hmm. parish. That's that's a great book that's coming out soon. Um, Brett Hoover's book looks at that, um, mm-hmm. looks at shared parishes. Um, so there's a lot of folks looking at these dynamics. And then the next step, well, what should the church, what should any religious institution do to have newcomers feel more welcome?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting in, the, in the, 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 the priests that you do focus on, they seem to be bridging that divide or attempting to bridge that divide as, as being sort of social justice warriors who are very conscious of, of what's going on in their in their parish. Uh, and I love that term, schizophrenic um, congregation. Uh, uh, yeah, it, you, you describe that beautifully in the book. I want to get to the meatpacking plants, and I actually want to read an excerpt from your book uh, because I think it paints a picture for us. You've got great descriptions. I think it's incredible that you got to get into the meatpacking plant and observe this um, but I'm just going to read this. It's, it's, it's a paragraph, but I'm just going to and, and we can talk about the meatpacking plants and the workers who are working there. Walking out to a meatpacking plant full, floor for the first time is like stepping into an alternative reality. But this was real, bloody real. It was loud, cold and crimson red. There was a lot going on and it was loud. There's an intense order to the plan. Each worker has a repetitive yet also highly skilled task. We walked by women and men with various knives and blades cutting through the now chilled pork meat, slicing and cutting parts that would be sold at wholesale and retail markets. Their white coats were splattered with blood. The plant was cold and constantly surveilled by the USDA inspectors, fat, meat droppings, and the occasional eyeball washed down drains next to our feet. We walked and stood amid thousands of pounds of cold flesh. As I raised my eyes to look above me, a light spray of water mixed with hog waste, managed to enter my mouth. I knew that I should not spit it out, so I swallowed it. I can still taste, smell, and see the meat as I write this. Uh, An incredible passage, um, and I apologize for any listeners who won't be eating dinner tonight because I've just read that.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) But you really do get at what's going on in these meat packing plants. What is it like to work there? Uh, What is the, the, the towns that these meat packing plants are in? How is that? how is that social space existing as these migrants are living nearby and working in those places?
1: Yeah, thanks for reading that. That's a great question. These packing plants are literally the lifeblood of these towns. And I did all the research, you know, before COVID hit, and there's a little bit in the end about COVID. But you know, these towns were hit really hard because these workers were hit really hard because at the time, there wasn't enough protective gear in place. I think plants have improved, but I still think they have a long way to go. So I really wanted to, um, my kids are always teasing me saying, mom, you're so descriptive. It's so TMI, just stop it. Maybe this book is a little too TMI, as my teenagers would say. But I wanted to, again, this the lived reality, I wanted, we're reading a lot now about meat packing plants and COVID, right? There's a lot of stuff coming out, but very, very few people have been able to have access to plants. And I'm one of those few who have. And I can tell you later if you're interested in how I got access, but I, I spent a couple days at Tyson, but I spent an entire work week at Iowa Premium Beef up in Tama, Iowa. And that's where I basically stayed in a motel. I would show up for the early shift and I would just stay all day and just taking notes in my notebooks and interviewing people and observing. I, I, uh, and just, I came away with an incredible, and I'm a vegetarian. I, I sort of out myself in the book. This was really hard work for me to do, not only because I haven't eaten meat for a long time, but because I but by the end of the week, I was really actually getting used to it. To be honest with you, I was kind of used to I was getting used to I was becoming sort of what I kept thinking about was that so many of these refugees are suffering PTSD from the migration process. Right. They're fleeing violence. Right. Some of these women have been raped and sexually sexually violated on the journey from Mexico, as they cross over the bestia, la bestia, right? These men and women have risked their lives to make it here. And this is where they work. These are the highest paying jobs in rural America. They have 401ks. They have good health insurance. They have paid vacations. They're mostly not unionized though. And that's another story. Unions have been gutted, but they're paid really well. These are the highest paying jobs in rural Iowa. You can advance quickly here. You can get paid to take college courses at community colleges. So there's a lot of perks. I'm in the process of, I really want to set up um, a scholarship at one of these plants for children, a meatpacking uh, plant, because, but none of the workers I interviewed want their own children or grandchildren working here. They're willing to do this so their children don't have to. And the language I use in the book is it's a kind of religious pay it forward. So they're doing this hard work. They're praying to God to get through the day so that their kids don't have to do this. So yeah, it's horrific. I mean, you pull up to the plant, you open your door and there's this horrible smell. It's a mixture of fecal matter, awful, which is all the waste products that can't be used for human consumption or for pet consumption. I have a couple dogs. So if you have pets and your dogs have rawhide or they have those little jerky strips, that's all from one of these plants. These plants don't waste a lot even parts of the animal you wouldn't think that we could eat are shipped abroad. And I detail some of that in the book. We don't have to go into that here, but like the black tongues from the black Angus um, cattle, those are, sh- are freeze dried and shipped to Japan where they're a delicacy. So one of the thing that, things that really impressed me is that these plants use as much of the animal as possible. They, they're, they're really, they're recycling, they're reusing. It's not Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I was able to see the plant very early in the morning for the shift, it was spotless, it was clean. I mean, these places, they're constantly t- having bacteria checks, they're cleaning, there's bleach. I mean, I learned that this is a very chemical process. And so that surprised me. I, surprised, I thought that I would see a little bit more Upton Sinclair, just disgusting. I mean, it was disgusting. Animal body parts are everywhere, but there's a method, there's a process And I wasn't inclined to see this as a vegetarian. And I had to really convince folks in order to have access. I had to really convince them that this wasn't a hit piece. I was going in to really show to people who don't know what goes on, what goes on. And one of the things I realized is that these are the very places that are employing people from all over the world. It's like a hidden UN here. It's like this, you know, when you go to the Tyson Columbus Junction plant, and you're walking from the intake building, where you get your badge and where you where you're you're being escorted, where you can get your scrubs and everything. You pass like 20 different signs, each has a different language welcoming you. Those are the languages of folks who, that are you know they speak at the plant. There's like dozens of languages spoken at these plants, and so a lot of these refugees get jobs as translators. So that's that's sort of a choice job. You can become a translator, and you can you can be the head of a line where you can help translate what the workers are saying to, to the upper and middle management. So there are middle management positions available for, for refugees pretty much day one. So I had a lot of surprises. Um, yes, it's gory, yes, it's bloody, yes, it's disgusting, but there's a method here. And, and I you know, I have to say, I mean, I think I had my own prejudices as I went into the plant. This is something I want my students to think of, my grad students to think about, what are our moods and motivations? What are our Biases as authors, and I went into this thinking certain things about Trump voters and about white Trump voters who still hold racist ideas, absolutely. But I tried to give a, a broader portrait of some of these guys. Um, Mike, for one, Mike Gager, who I spent a lot of time with. I, I don't smoke; I've never smoked, but I felt like I smoked, you know, several packs of cigarettes by the end of the week shadowing Mike. Um, But Mike is a really interesting guy and he's, yes, he voted for Trump. Yes, he owns a lot of firearms, but he's, yes, but he's also promoting Latinos in the workplace and he really wants to be obsolete in the workplace in the next few years. So again, it's this complicated story. I came away with a deep respect for these workers. I could, after a week, I, I, I just, and I didn't even do the work. I wasn't allowed to actually do the cutting. I was on the line observing. But because of legal issues, they didn't allow me to actually make the cuts. I really wanted to actually. Um, but I was allowed to be on the line. I went through the worker training. I saw everything. I learned how to grade meat, but I wasn't actually allowed to make the cuts. But yeah, so it, it's heavy. And I wanted the reader to come away like, wow, when you when you grill a steak or what you know, half chicken or whatever, like it's more than likely a refugee that has killed, processed, and packaged the meat. And Let's think about that. Let's sit with that, you
0: know? Yeah, and yeah, there's a ton of nuance and in the, the, in, in complexity to all the individuals that you've interviewed and presented in, in this book. I do want to talk about the role of religion in the workplace, right? Which is a big piece of this entire book. You know, we, we briefly mentioned, and maybe we'll get back to it in a second, about how workers use religion to sort of get through the workday and understand their place at that job. What I was also interested in, Uh, religion as sort of a corporate uh, task, a a responsibility of the corporation. In fact, the Tyson factory actually employs a a chaplain who serves multiple roles, it seems, uh, part therapist, part human resources representative, part religious leader and morale booster. I I, I found this very interesting. How does this position fit into the broader history of corporate paternalism uh, and what you call servant leadership?
1: A great question. That was another surprise. And this is something again why I love doing field work. I just any any research, right? I love being surprised. And I'm a very curious person. So what I learned, Emma Green has written a really good piece on Tyson and Chaplaincy. I think it was in the Atlantic, I think, but Emma Green has a piece out that's really good. It's really worth reading. Yeah, Joe Blay, who is the chaplain at Tyson. And I spent a lot of time with Joe. He actually lives in Iowa City and commute. So we'll have coffee sometime. And in fact, we're having coffee soon because I want to give him a copy of the book. Joe's been a a good friend and confidant. Tyson, what I learned from Emma Green's piece before I even knew that this was a thing, Tyson has the largest chaplaincy program of any corporation in the world. So every single Tyson plant, whether it's pork or chicken or beef, they're not really into beef so much anymore, but pork, chicken, has a chaplain. And as you said, these are sort of like ship ship shapers, right? They're like counselors, they send, Joe sends like weekly emails with like scripture and little chirpy messages like, have a great day. You know, if you want a koozie, come down to my office, you know, I'll give you a Tyson koozie. Or if you've had a baby, come get your baby blanket. You know, we have pink and blue. He takes injured workers to the doctor, usually to the University of Iowa clinic or a rural clinic, but usually up to the hospital. He he has many roles. One of the, the, one of the fascinating things that I discovered too, is that most of these chaplains, our former military chaplains. So think about that, right? Many of them are also suffering from a kind of PTSD. Joe himself had a near death experience that I describe in the book. He, so, and I think that this is intentional, right? He understands, like most of these chaplains, they have a point of reference, right? They've been on the battlefield, they're ministering to men and women, they, them, theirs who are on the battlefield, they understand PTSD. Many of them have degrees in counseling as well as Joe does. He's a pastor and he has a counseling degree. So he's an ordained minister and he has his MA in counseling and he's been on the line. So he, it's like the perfect storm of skills, right? For this position. And he's told me, Joe's told me cause we spent a lot of time together. He said, you know, Really, he said, anyone who's going anyone who works here has had P- PTSD. And he said, he, he said, if you work at Tyson, you're going to have PTSD. And, and you know, at, at least in the very beginning, this is there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of violence. But he said, you get used to it. And he said, but there's a danger in that, too. And so he he counsels people. He sometimes makes home visits. He's kind of a jack of all trades. Now at Iowa Premium Beef, they don't have a chaplain because I specifically asked them this. I said, so you guys don't, you don't have a chaplain that Tyson does, you know? And there's a little competitiveness there. And they're like, well, you know, we don't have a chaplain because we don't want to privilege any one religious tradition. And chaplains tend to be rooted in the Christian tradition. I was pretty blown away actually by the knowledge of religious diversity that that my interlocutors there had. So what they do at IPB and there's, you know, there's, there's a danger to this too. And I, and I know, so I want to look pretty. I think that what I would like the reader to do is to look at everything with a hermeneutic of empathy, but also, also a hermeneutic of suspicion. And I think that as scholars, we tend to look at things too much with suspicion. And so I'm trying to craft a middle ground here. Right? Let's say yes, this exists. There's this corporate language of stewardship at Iowa Premium Beef and Tyson. That's all about farming and family and we treat our our workers as family. They're not workers or employees, they're family. Well, that's pretty problematic because they're actively discouraging and busting unions, right? Let's look at that. And so family members, yes, but family members who you don't want to have the protections of a union. And so I do, I do poke at this. Um, I do investigate this, but Yeah, most of the white men and women who are in upper management at Iowa Premium Beef and Tyson really believe, they believe that they are called to do this work. Many of them are very involved in their communities with doing service work. Dave, who was the former um, human resources manager at Tyson, he no longer is, he's the one that who allowed me to go into the plant on a couple occasions, gave me access. He's very involved with his church. He does a lot of you know, good works in his community. So there's a lot of language of doing the work, doing the good work. Now, sometimes God is brought in, but it's it's thinly veiled, you know? And those of us who were trained in religious studies and theology, we, we, we pick up on this. It's a coded language. And um, most of the plant upper management are very involved. Yeah, they're very involved in their own faith. One of the things that really gripped me when I was there at Camden, and I, and I talk about this a bit in one of the chapters, is that at IPB, they're very aware of interfaith and respecting interfaith realities. And so because it's a, a halal beef plant, there are Muslim men and women who work there. Of course, they're not working at the Tyson pork plant because pork is prohibited within, you know, within Islam, in the theology of Islam. And so I'll, I'll never forget, this was one of those, those ethnographic moments that I'll stay with me the rest of my life. When I was in the locker room on one of the tour of the plant, Talking with the janitor who was, you know, trying to clean the fat and just the grime that just constantly accumulates, and throwing what's called quat on the floor, which is a powdered soap, just so you don't slip on the grease that's all all around. These Muslim women had crafted a little prayer area, so they had taken like a, a shower curtain and they had drawn it in a semicircle, and then they had their prayer rugs. And so it was fascinating to me that in a really disgusting, profane place that smelled of blood and shit and awful and all these terrible things, that these women were able to craft a sacred moment during the call, call to prayer, and that they just asked their supervisors if they could have that time and their supervisors would get permission from human resources. And so what I discovered at IPB is this is a company that's also... And there's a larger discourse about how do you respect different faiths in the workplace without privileging one over the other. I was fairly pleased by what I saw. I was like, wow, this is this is interesting, you know? And so I hadn't I hadn't planned on seeing that, but so faith yeah. is definitely in these workplaces in various ways.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's both sort of like this corporate sort of side of things. But as you've noted, like workers are also finding their own ways and spaces to you know, create religious experiences or find a meaning religiously uh, in the work that they're doing, which is a really fascinating sort of top-down, bottom-up form of religion that you're exploring in the book as well. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long here, um, but oh, what, what do you think listeners of Heartland History should take away from meatpacking America?
1: Well, I think on a meta level, I just hope that my listeners are curious and that you look around you and those of you who do research, especially students, trust your gut. I knew this was a story. And again, meatpacking plants weren't in the news um, because COVID hadn't happened yet. Right. But I knew this was a story and trust your gut. If it feels like this is a story, go with it. You're going to have ups and downs, but go with your gut. So I'm saying that to students, trust yourself be a good listener, you know, it's, it's because I'm a, I'm a good listener that I was able to just sit and just listen and, and, and to look, so sit and listen, don't be afraid to listen and don't be afraid to observe. You know, I always have, I, I have a hundred of these like mini notebooks that I order bulk in my office. And I always have a little notebook on me, whether it's in my purse, my briefcase, it's, it's in every single bag, my soccer mom bag for the weekends, you know, and I'm always taking notes. I'm always taking notes. Um, I just hope that it, 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 you know, just sort of a meta level that just, you know, in my graduate class this semester, we're talking a lot about the craft of writing and the process of doing research. And so that would be one of the things I would love my readers take away is trust yourself, get excited, constantly take notes. And it, it's a process. This book would, I mean, this, this took about 10 years. I mean, it was like six, seven years of research. It was drafting. It was, you know, so it, it takes time to do this work. But like, as we've talked about Camden, I just, I hope that the readers take away a more complicated and nuanced story about the Midwest than, than, than we've been hearing in the news outlets. And I did want to give a, a brief shout out to, to Kristen Hoganson has a really great history on the heartland. I, I mentioned her in the book and Sarah Smarsh is a real role, role model of mine. Her book Heartland is just a beautiful book about growing up poor and white in Kansas and, you know, I think that a big takeaway that I love for folks to have is that we have more that connects us than divides us. I really believe that. And I don't believe that because I because I want to see that it's because I see it and because I, I because I'm not closed off as a scholar. So I would encourage folks to be open when you start a research process, be open to surprises. Be open to things that challenge you because we all have our deeply embedded biases and moods and motivations. And this book and the people I met really, really challenged me. Who knew that a white Republican man and I could have a really fascinating discussion about gender and gender in the workplace. And I took away a lot of wisdom from that conversation. Didn't expect that. So be open, follow your gut and um, push back on tropes. You know, push back on tropes, because I think it's important. And I think that um, maybe the last thing is, I've long been interested in class. And I think that in religious studies, we haven't done a very good job looking at class. In the working class, you know, and I think that uh, maybe in urban settings, but not so much rural settings. And so I'd love to see like a rural renewal, more folks interested in looking at class and looking at what connects newcomers from older migrants who came, you know, years before. And I think a lot of what connects them is class. A lot of whites, white ethnics who were poor, still are poor, actually. And so so, yeah, that's what I guess I'd have to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, some, great, some great things to ponder on. Uh, and before we wrap up, I'm curious. I know the book just came out. Uh, yeah. and, but are you thinking about next projects? Are you, are you working on anything?
1: Yeah, you know, that's so hard, right? Because, you know, you want to relish it. Well, I, I have an edited volume on Latinx Christianities coming out in the spring through Oxford University Press. And I'm, it's, a, it's a wonderful compilation of like, leading Latino religious studies scholars. I'm really excited about that. So that's coming out soon. Yeah, you know, I think the next big ethnography, I have a couple ideas. One would be on um, Iowa farming and faith, uh, sort of then and now. And I think I would really want to start with with the farm crisis, actually. Another project that I long have wanted to do is to return, because I read a lot of memoirs. And so I've been thinking a lot about what would an ethnographically informed, historically informed memoir look like on my own family. So I think that that would entail for me, returning to Gary, Indiana, where my Lebanese side of the family from Beha Valley came over in the late 19th century. And then my Polish and Czech relatives on my, um, also came over at that same time. Um, There hasn't been a lot on Gary, aside from Children of the Mill, which was a really great history um, that came out in the eighties, I think. Uh, Ronald Cohen, I think, wrote that. So I think that's, that's, those are two projects that I'm really thinking about. Yeah. And so kind of middle age now too, and thinking a lot about, you know, my parents are getting older and I think a lot about going home more, visiting my family more. Would it be, mean to, to go back to Gary, to return to where I'm from and to do a story about migration, religion and work there. So I think that that, that's probably the Project I'm most passionate about, but I'm also really committed to doing the Iowa project because I feel really strongly about being in place. Because I'm here at the University of Iowa, I feel a really strong sense of obligation to do Iowa-based projects. You know, so I think I'll get both. I'll get to both of them. I'm not sure what order.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure you know all the listeners here at Heartland History will eagerly await whatever one comes first. But no, that they both sound fascinating, uh, and I, I, I do hope you pursue both of them. Thank you. Uh, Well, Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I loved reading the book. Um, Again, for our listeners, the book is Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work and Faith, Unite and Divide the Heartland, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Get your hands on a copy at your local bookstore or at the University of North Carolina Press website. Again, Christy, thank you so much. This was great.
1: Thank you, Cameron.